Hi, good morning. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians. What's love got to do with it? Take your Bible, turn to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians 13. I encouraged you last Sunday to read this every day. Let's read it together. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, And if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. That's what we're going to look at today, is patience. All these words are verbs. They're not nouns or adjectives. So love, in action, waits patiently. That's what Paul is saying. Love, in full bloom, in operation, in action, waits patiently. Shows kindness. Is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. What's love got to do with it? Everything. That's what Paul would say. I learned that the hard way, and I'm still learning it. I think you know my story. I've told it a couple of times. Like you, in my youth, I wanted to change the world. I still do. But I found I couldn't even change myself. 
during a drug-induced, I'll call it a nightmare because it went on for hours. On the last night of 1971, New Year's Eve, I became convinced that nobody ever loved me. Horribly high and despairing of life. Throughout the night, I wrestled with the reason for my existence. When morning came, I started the first day of 1972 with a pledge. Since nobody loved me, I know I, that sounds crazy, but that's exactly what I was convinced of. And the thought that kept me going was that this drug will wear off, or drugs, but that didn't give me a reason for living. The reason for living, for me, at that point in time, which was crucial, was that I should love everybody else. And that became my, my quest at 18 on the first day of 1972. I was in a household on Russell Street in Berkeley. There were eight of us in that house that, that, to celebrate the new year. The one that went horribly wrong that was no celebration for me. And when I faced those people in the morning, I began, like with little steps, in my own way, with my feeble understanding, to try and love those people. And that continued every day thereafter. And for three months, that was my quest, my calling. That was what, to me, gave reason and purpose and meaning. But I was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And I, as each day went on and each effort, I mean, love is not just for holidays or special occasions. Our lives revolve around people. And if it's our quest and our calling, or mine, to love the people around me, it keeps you pretty busy. And I learned a lot about myself. And I found that I was horribly selfish. I found it was impossible to love these people the way I desired. And I became increasingly aware of the artificiality of the love that I was trying to live. And it, it brought me to Jesus Christ. It brought me to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in that cross I saw the perfect love of God for me. I realized that I needed a love that I didn't have. And 
that in coming to the cross, in giving up and recognizing the wretch that I had come to see I really was, even with my greatest aspirations for love and this effort. I mean, I, I had improved incredibly as a person. I dropped habits. I became more generous. I mean, a lot of good things happened. But the irony was, was that I knew inside that it wasn't totally selfless. It was, in fact, self-serving. I couldn't escape that. So pursuing love led me to the author of love, the epitome of love. And even after all these years, I have yet to graduate from the school of love. I keep flunking. The disciple is never greater than the master. But I'm not quitting. And as you might imagine, throughout the week I'm pondering patience and I'm thinking about love. Wow, what a rough week it was. I'm still being schooled in love. We all need to be schooled in love. And there's plenty of reasons for us to stay in school. Love brings us closer to God. It draws us to his breast, just like the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple was drawn to the breast of Christ. The gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is love. God's love for us. His love for others. That's what the New Testament teaches us on nearly every page. God is love. And it's not always stated in just a few words or a proposition, God is love. But it actually is. In 1 John, God is love. His nature is love. That should compel us and propel us as we draw near to him. And as we seek to love, we're drawn into his very nature. Jesus embodies God's love. God condescending, divesting himself of his glory, becoming like us, even to the point of the cross, because of his love for us. These things are at the very heart of the gospel. And we see that expressed so eloquently in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. The great commandment, I expressed that last week, can't get away from it. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and your neighbor. And all of the writers of the New Testament, Peter, James, John, Paul, they all repeat, they regurgitate these very words of Jesus, that in loving God and loving neighbor, the whole law, in other words, the will of God, Sometimes we want to know what God's will is. Oh, if I just knew his will. Jesus and the apostles, his disciples, they caught it. Love God, love your neighbor. 
This epitomizes God's will. If I want to be a disciple of Jesus, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke chapter 6, 27 through 36, He says, if you want to follow Me, you've got to love. Not like the world loves, but like our Heavenly Father loves. You want to follow Me, love. It's the badge and the uniform of discipleship. In fact, in John chapter 13, Jesus says, by loving one another, you'll, you'll show the world that you are my disciples. Of all the things in Scripture we could argue about, of all the things that divide churches and people that are grounded in Scripture, All of these things are trumped by the greatest doctrine, the doctrine of love. We have to love love because God, whose very nature is love, has loved us, and we are to love one another as He's loved us. By loving love, I mean we need to be inspired enthralled by Jesus' love. Much like the song, I've decided to follow... I'm not going to sing it today. But if it would move you to love, I would be willing to be a fool. I've decided to follow Jesus. And in those striking words, though no one join me, still I will follow. Though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. But what is love? Paul defines love here in 1 Corinthians 13. The Greeks and the Corinthians, love has a context. And this falls in chapter 13 of a very long letter. A letter that had no chapters had no verses. It flows right out of chapter 12, right out of the words, I show you a better way, a more excellent way. He tells us that love has to do with everything about our Christian walk, everything that we would aspire to or consider consider virtuous. But in talking to the Corinthians, you would think, since he's writing in Greek and love, the word love that he uses is Greek, that they would have a grasp of what love is, that they would have a clear understanding. I think we, like the Corinthians, need a clearer understanding. The Greeks had a number of words for love. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on the four words for love, the most prominent. There were more than four. For example, there was eros, for the intoxicating passion of romantic love. Even religious ecstasy was described as eros. We get our word erotic from eros. 
There was another word, philia, for the love of friendship, family, and country. Philadelphia. Philanthropy are drawn from the Greek word philia. Another word, storge, refers to the natural affection that parents have for their children. We had a birthday party yesterday for two of our grandkids. One celebrates on the 19th and one on the 27th, so we had a joint birthday party. And they're just, just a natural affection. You just want to gobble those little guys up. You just love them. You don't want any harm to come to them. You want to protect them. You, you're just moved to pray for them because you want them to grow up to be fine people. You, you just want the best for them. These are these beautiful words. We have one word for love. They had many words. We have one word, L-O-V-E. In fact, it's, when you just take that word, it's not only a noun, it's a verb. Just depends on how you use it. One word does all that work. And we use it that way. I mean, it's the Walmart of words. We love the silliest things. We love everything. I mean, just listen to the way people use the word love. So we need to be schooled in love. We need to know what this is all about. And Paul sets about to describe and explain to the Corinthians the meaning of love. Paul and all the New Testament writers use a different word. Not eros, not philia, not storge, but agape. And what's strange about this word agape is that it's seldom used by earlier Greek writers. I mean a handful. I'm not exaggerating. A handful. That's five at best. It's seldom used. Classical scholars say not only is it just used a handful of times, but it's a rather anemic word. Some would best translate those earlier uses of it as goodwill. Yet biblical writers, Paul, John, Peter, James, the biblical writers take over this word, agape. And it's like they immerse it into the gospel. Into the nature of God's love, demonstrated and exhibited in the cross of Jesus Christ. It becomes the word, the chief, the central, the major word. Storge, eros don't even occur in the New Testament. Philia. And its verb a few times. But agape captures God's love for us and our love for Him and our love for each other. 
And what characterizes agape love is that it's not primarily a love drawn from feelings or emotions. Agape, this love that God demonstrates in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, in the cross, in his word, is a mindset or an orientation of the will, an attitude of the heart, a principle by which we deliberately live, as William Barclay, I think, put it so well. It determines that it will seek the highest good for other people. That's why when I think of agape, I think of seeking God's best for another. If I were to summarize a definition from my years of trying to let God love through me and study His Word and capture the essence, it would be seeking God's best, God's highest good for another. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount can say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those who mistreat you. The philosopher Immanuel Kant said that's impossible. You can't just turn love on and off. And he's right. You can't, or you can't. If love is primarily a feeling. But if it's a mindset an orientation of the will, an attitude of the heart. And where would this mindset, this, this principle by which we deliberately live, those are, those are great words, a principle by which we deliberately, not casually, not occasionally, not if it just strikes us or overcomes us or enraptures us, but deliberately live. That comes from being touched by the love of God. That comes from being forever changed by the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not something just up here. It's something here in our heart, not in our head alone. We've been so rocked by the love of God. We've personalized it. It's touched us. It's changed us. It's reached the extremes of our soul and our heart in such a way that we're moved to love others as God in Jesus Christ has loved us. Agape love seeks the highest good for other people. It seeks God's best for another. And so Paul gives us a definition here in 1 Corinthians 13. And especially in verses 4 through 7. Paul shows us what love is by showing us what love does. He gives us 15 phrases in verses 4 through 7. 
And this is striking. This hit me just two days ago. I mean, as many times as I've read this, it, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit this. It, it just overwhelmed me for the very first time that, that patience is the first description of love in action. When love is at work, the very first character, as if he's watching love in action, he pulls out the first characterization and it's patience, waiting patiently. And I thought, wow, if I was going to write a beautiful poem or extol love, I'm not sure that I would begin with patience. And shows kindness is the second. And then the next eight are not not love. Not love, not love. So we have two assertions and eight negations. And I just thought, what? Love is patient, or love shows or waits patiently. Patience is defined as the capacity to accept or tolerate delay trouble or suffering without getting angry or upset. I went to the doctor on Monday. I had an MRI a couple months ago and they said make sure you bring your MRI and the doctor when I was to see my my personal doctor he said and here is your MRI description and so I took that in with me and I went to the window and I waited because the window was shut and there was people busy in the office and I stood there and waited and finally they came and they slid open the window I got there early and they said uh, Let's see your insurance card. Do you have your MRI? Oh, I said, I've got my MRI. Oh, we don't need that. We've already got that. But do you have your pictures? My pictures? Nobody gave me any pictures. Oh, well, you have to go to where you had the MRI and get the pictures. right now (laughs) okay I'll be right back jumped in my car I'm walking up to get my MRI pictures and there's a very slow couple going through the doors right in front of me there's a crowd like four of them I actually wanted to run around in front of them, but I didn't, and I waited. And then I set forward what I needed, and they said, it'll be about 
20 minutes, but maybe less. And I hung on those words, maybe less. <laughs> but they gave me the CD, I went back, and then I waited some more, and I waited and waited. And I was, I was cordial enough, but I wasn't extremely outgoing. And, 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 and during this thing, I'm thinking... I'm not doing this very well. I could do a lot better. But I'd kind of missed my opportunity. I didn't have my mindset engaged. And I share that with you. At one point I actually thought, I hope this lady doesn't come to Grace Community Church and realize I'm the guy. I'm trying to level with you. Even after all these years in this continuing quest where I want to love, it's, it's hard going sometimes. It's slogging. You can't do it in your own strength. You need the love of God. You need to turn to Him. You need to be conscious of Him. You need to realize that in His love is power that you don't have in your own mindset, in your own little personal, what I would call my selfish world. I didn't do anything to embarrass Christ, but I didn't do anything to glorify Him. And that's what I want to do. I want to be outstanding for Christ. And I can't be outstanding unless I'm engulfed in His love. That definition of patience, the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset, is a dictionary definition. But there's a biblical definition. The very word Paul uses here, it's the most common word for patience, is macrothumia. It's all one word, macro. You probably know enough. I mean, micro, macro. This is large. This is long. This is huge. This is lengthy. Thumia. Anger or wrath. Patience is withholding your anger. It's restricting your anger. Well, what, what stimulates anger? I mean, we can look really cool and composed and be gurgling with anger inside, can't we? Anger, where does that come from? It comes from the stupidity of others. <laughs> like when I'm driving. <laughs> this whole week has made me aware of the stupidity of others. You know I just... I just, we never escape things that try our patience, that irritate us. That they are the faults. Our per, we perceive faults. They don't do it the way I was taught to do it or the way I think it should be done. And the more controlling we are, the more faults we see in others. And it stimulates irritation, frustration. We get exacerbated. 
And patience, even the very word that is translated patience, acknowledges, it gives place to that reality in human experience, in our experience. And patience is withholding, it's restricting, it's containing irritation, frustration, anger with the folly and foolishness of others and the world around us. But what's the motivation? You can run a search, you can Google patience and find lots of quotes from a range of people that will extol patience and how vital and central and important it is to success in life. And you can bear down and just bite your lip and be patient. But that's not, Paul says, where godly patience comes from. It it is not the triumph of self-serving. I know it's best for me to be patient here, so I'm going to grin and bear it. No. Patience, patience comes with love from the Lord because the Lord looks beyond my faults to meet my needs. The Lord looks beyond my faults. The Lord looks beyond your faults. He looks right past all the faults that He sees. All the failings, all the foolishness, all the selfishness to see the need behind it. Faults are unmet needs. Faults are the symptoms of unmet needs. Some of the big faults, the self-destructive faults of drug addiction and alcohol and things like that where we're trying to anesthetize a hurt, a need, a heart that's empty. If you examine yourself, you'll find that there are crazy little wants, even in our marriages, where we aren't straightforward enough in asking that loved one, our husband or our wife, you know, I need. We don't use that word because we think sometimes it shows weakness. Or it embarrasses us to acknowledge that. And so we even deny it to ourselves. But faults, the things we do to fill those needs, we do in all the wrong ways. And the results are the crazy little faults that unnerve others. God looks past that to meet our needs with His love. And when we're filled with His love, we have the resources, the abundance to look past the needs of others 
the faults of others to meet their needs. And that is patience in its essence. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes to Timothy that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says to Timothy, I should know. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm among the biggest sinner. Then he says, I was saved by the mercy shown to me and have become an example of Christ's perfect patience. In other words, Paul was the outcome of Jesus' patience with him. He didn't give him what he deserved. He didn't get angry with him. He didn't pour out his wrath on him. He withheld his anger in order to meet his needs. And he saved him. The same concept is in Matthew chapter 18, a favorite parable. The context is Peter asking Jesus about forgiveness. I mean, how long do I have to put up with these people and keep forgiving them? And Jesus tells him this parable about a king and his servant. And the servant owed him this exorbitant, this incalculable sum of money. By today's standards, over $10 million, which is ludicrous. It's, a, it's an exaggeration to make a point. No king would lend his slave that much money. But the debt was there. And it was a debt the slave couldn't pay. And the bookkeepers told the king, your debt, as they were doing an accounting, they said, your, your, your slave owes you this much money. So he says, bring him in here. And he says, pay up to the slave. And the slave realizes that he can't pay up. He falls on his face and he begs. And here's what he says, he says, be patient with me. And the word is, withhold your anger. Don't give me what I deserve. Contain your anger. Be patient with me. I'll pay you back. In other words, if you won't let me have it, if you'll give me the time by not letting me have it, I'll pay you back. Well, that's ludicrous. And he throws in a few incentives like, I've got a wife and kids, and what are they going to do without me? And, and you know what the king does? He shows him mercy. Just as Paul said, Jesus showed him, the chief of sinners, the least deserving. And he says, now I'm an emblem of his perfect patience. This king, he takes the debt of 10 million bucks and he tears it up. He cancels it. He says... I'm going to show you mercy like you've never seen. And what is mercy? It's being given what you don't deserve. So what does a slave do? He leaves this audience with the king, and just outside he runs into a fellow servant. And this fellow servant owes him about 25 bucks, one six hundred thousandth of what he had just been forgiven. That debt that had been canceled. And that's the word, forgiveness. To have it canceled. And he says to the servant, you owe me 25 bucks, pay up. And that servant falls on his face before his friend. 
And he says, be patient with me. And he gives him the same line that he gave the king. And he's angry with this fellow servant. He bullies him, has him arrested, has him thrown in jail. He did not withhold his anger for the benefit of his fellow servant. He let it go for his own benefit. Well, when the king heard about this, because there were others looking on, they thought that was very unjust. When the king heard about this, he called that servant back in, and this is what he says to him. He says, should not, this is verse 33, should you not have shown mercy to your fellow slave, just as I showed it to you? And then in verse 34, in anger, see, in contrast, withhold your anger. Now, in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. The agape love of the gospel is epitomized in words like this from Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Agape, this love of God is the key to patience because God's love looks beyond our faults to meet our needs. And what is that? It's patience. Isn't it faults of people and circumstances that exasperate us, exhaust our patience, and kindle in us all the love is not of the next few verses? But if we're possessed with this love that looks beyond our faults to meet our needs. This love, this love that is so unconditional, so gracious, so good, then it changes us. And it changes us forever. What can we do to exercise patience? Well, we can set our mind on these things. We can prepare our hearts We can ask God to fill us with His love. We can walk by faith and we can reduce the irritation to the moment and say right here, right now, I'm going to let God love through me. When I got home from church last Sunday, it was Father's Day and I'm a father too. And there on the table where I throw my keys and my change and all that stuff, there was a card from my son. I didn't ask him if I could read this, so I'm not going to read it. But I just want to share a sentence or two. I don't know how to thank you for being so steadfast and patient and caring with me. And now that my son is getting older, I can appreciate even more the patience and love you've shown me. I hope I can be as good a father to my son as you have been to me. I would never have expected a card like that. You know, sometimes we just can't see how God is at work through us. We see all the stuff, the failings and shortcomings. 
And you know what it does when we see the failings and shortcomings, the imperfections in our own love, even when God is filling us because we're human and, you know, we're kind of limited by our experience and spiritual growth. So wherever we are, we're all going to have kind of a different awareness of our shortcomings, our failings, our selfishness. But you know what it does? It enlarges our appreciation of God's love for us. I mean, when I'm aware of my shortcomings and failings, it just it becomes a greater repertoire of God's love. I mean, it just it, it humbles me even more. It, he is so loving that all these things that I'm so aware of, He looks past to meet my needs. And it makes me aware that when others disappoint me or in some way irritate me, God has already in numerous ways and at numerous times forgiven me, loved me through that very same thing. And it it refreshes my soul to love that person just as I know God has loved me. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us and we'll close. I'll be up here along with the pastoral staff and elders and as we dismiss, uh, we'll We'll hear some music, but maybe we'll hear the Lord speaking to us. If you'd like to come and pray with me or one of our staff or elders, we invite you to do that. My desire today for us, for me included, is that we would have this mindset, this disposition of the heart that's, that's shaped by God's love, our life-changing personal experience of God's love and that as we leave and as we go throughout this day and throughout this week we would be compelled by his love this disposition this mindset this understanding of what God's done for us to love others as he has loved us but this morning if you don't know him if you don't know his love in a personal way if you aren't bowled over by what God in Jesus Christ has done for you, that He loves you, it's got to start right there. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm sure a lot of things are going through our minds, personal application, individual examples in our own life, people that are difficult for us, co-workers, family members, husband or wife, Father, grip our hearts and souls this morning. And if we don't know you, Father, may we turn to you, trust you, learn to relish and care for your love because it has changed us and touched us deeply. In Jesus' name we praise and thank you for your Son, your matchless, incomparable Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.